good being with you all again. Um, yeah, so we are going to continue on in Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Sort of a heavy passage. Um, let me remind you all of what we did uh, two weeks ago when we were last in Acts. Uh, the text was Acts 4, 32-37, and the, uh, the title of that sermon was The Focus That Is Formative and Fruitful. If you can, there's a pattern forming in this mini-series. Uh, today's title is A Focus That Is Fatal and Fear-Inducing. See, I've used alliteration. Doesn't matter. Um, the thesis for that for that sermon was being unified requires a uniform focus on Christ, but not uniformity. The result is much corporate fruit, including a powerful witness to the outside world, exemplars needed. And the church, what we saw in Acts 4, 32 through 37, there was this focus on Christ. They were so focused. They were sharing and no one was in need. The apostles were doing, follow, were doing powerful work. And we are introduced to Barnabas, um, the Apostle Barnabas. And, and we're just given this like wonderful introduction to, the, to, the, to this encouraging Apostle. Um, also, I shared my love of aquatic creatures at that sermon. And uh, so I'm going to tell you part two of my aquarium story. In fact... Today, like this morning, every Sunday morning when I'm driving down Cascade Road, I drive next, next to Thornapple Covenant Church. Does anyone know where that is? They have a most wonderful stream running through their front. And I want that stream either in my yard or maybe in the front of our church. I don't know how much that will cost, but I'm willing to throw some money around. So... But anyway, my aquarium. I got a, an aquarium in elementary school. I think it was about fifth grade. And I just always had this, like, I want a bunch of different creatures. And my dad actually ag agreed to do the following. I took that 20-gallon aquarium. That 20 gallons is not that big. I mean, it's like this by this by this. Um, and I put different fish, like tetras and angelfish, I put something called a loach. It sort of looks like a, cat, uh, a cross between a catfish and a, an eel. And I also, also got a real live freshwater eel. Two clams, which were kind of boring. I don't even know if they were alive. They just sort of, they sort of just sat where they dropped. Um, two snails, a fiddler crab, a puffer fish, take it out of the tank. It goes, like, it starts inflating. It's pretty cool. Placo. A placo kind of looks like it's one of those sucker fish. And it, I thought it kind of looked like a stingray, so let's buy it. Um, a newt. So, like, a, a little salamander, like a, but different. Newt. A frog, like a real frog, like. Um, multiple ghost shrimp. A blind cave fish. The thing doesn't have eyes. It's crazy. An upside-down catfish. This thing would always, like, it was always upside-down. It was the weirdest thing. 
um, something called a Colombian shark. It wasn't really a, a shark, it was a catfish, but I was like, maybe it's related though, let's buy it. And I was pumped, and I just sat there like, just watching my aqua paradise. It was beautiful. Everything was pretty cool for about a week. But then I noticed some problems. The ghost shrimp started disappearing one by one. The frog's gone. Still to this day, I've not found the frog in my parents' house. Every now and then through the years I've had aquarium, I'd find like a newt that escaped, like it's all mummified and dried. You know what I mean? Like under, like it's got fuzz. Like, ah, it's, you can, it's like now a toy. Um, I didn't play with that. I was too much of a germaphobe when I was little. I probably washed my hands and threw it away. Threw it away, then washed my hands. And then the eel would rarely come out. It was kind of boring. It was like my favorite thing, and it would not come out. And then here's another thing. Some of the fish, like some of the more like the fish with long fins and stuff, they had nips in them. It looks like they had gone through a war. And I was really frustrated. I think there was one, maybe two creatures that were sort of wreaking havoc in my little paradise. Now, I think the frog simply escaped. And I, we had a cat at the time. Pretty sure the cat got it. I don't know who the cat represents in this metaphor. Maybe Satan or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't push the metaphor too far. That's probably a good thing. But I was majorly frustrated at my beautiful paradise. And reflecting on this, I've come away with two conclusions. One, I still kick myself for not getting rid of the Colombian shark because that thing for years would wreak havoc. I should have just like, many days I just wanted to throw it out of the tank or flush it down the toilet, but I just let it, like I sort of like suffered it. But I think that was the main culprit. The other thing is, through preparation for this sermon, I'm, I'm convinced that I really, really want an octopus. I mean, you can buy octopi, octopi that only get six inches and, and they're really smart. Doesn't matter. That's not part of this. But why this account? Why this story? A big tank of the same or closely similar creatures is not so interesting. And that's not what we come and see in Acts chapter 4. We see people working together. We see people blessed with material goods, giving those material goods for, for the rest of the people. They're going through persecution, and they're helping each other. The, and they're, it looks like the, the apostles are able to do their jobs because other people are doing their jobs, and, and the gospel is going forth. But in the text today, though Ananias and Sapphira were not going around eating other folks, they did not have a healthy view of the church. They spoiled things. So, let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV, starting verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it out at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Heavy story. Here are the three questions that are going to guide us through our time today. One, what precisely is their sin and its roots? Two, why did God strike them down as he did? And then three, of what were the people afraid? Of what were the people afraid? So let's, let's turn to the first question, the sin. What precisely is their sin and its roots? So let's, let's look back to last passage, Acts 4, 32 through 37. Um, we're introduced to none other than Barnabas. Now, one of the characteristics of Scripture is, just like many, maybe many other books as well, when you have two characters in close proximity to one another, there is often an intended comparison. And I think that's what we have here. There's a comparison of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Now, the whole Barnabas episode of him, Barnabas, if you recall, um, there was need in the church. He, gave, he sold a field and gave the entire proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was called the son of encouragement, and he was much celebrated. Now, that instance, that, that, that event did not have to proceed, chronologically pro- precede um, Ananias and Sapphira. It may have. There's arguments in the in commentaries, whether it did or not, um, you know, or, or they're just pointing out that at some point Barnabas did this. Um, but nonetheless, there's still there's still a, a comparison desired. So, Barnabas did something that has is potentially contagious and good, but Ananias and Sapphira did something that was also potentially contagious. And bad. So what did Ananias and Sapphira do exactly? They had a field. They sold it. They laid it at the apostles' feet, somehow indicating in some way that this was the entire proceeds 
So maybe there was much fanfare, a lot of pats on the back, I, I don't know. But somehow they communicated to the apostles and to the church, this is it, we are, we're giving everything. Now, what were the rules? What were the rules? There does not seem to be any rule that you had to give everything to the church when you sold something. Uh, in fact, if you look at verse 4, uh, Peter said, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So there was no rule that when you everyone's got to sell their house and fields. And when you sell them, you have to give the entire... Yeah, that does not seem to be the case. But what is the accusation? Okay, we're just sort of like, sort of breaking this down and trying to, trying to get to the nuts and bolts of what's going on here. Here's the accusation in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan built your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Dot, dot, dot. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. So let's do, I'm going to have a quick excursus, sort of a side, because there's two, there's, there's two um, agents that we have to talk about just real quick, but it's going to sort of take us, take us away from our, our investigation. Uh, first, our little excursus or aside is on Satan. The church in 432 and 37, they have all this external pressure. And guess what it's doing? It's making the church better. And Satan, Satan this, I mean, the church has Satan's attention, full attention. And so he has to think, huh, I'm going to go from the inside. I'm going to try to destroy them, harm them from the inside. Right? So there's that. And then we have to think of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also another agent. He has lied to the Holy Spirit. He has lied to God. Now, oftentimes, um, this is historically considered one of the most overt declarations that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Right? So the... Who's heard of something called the Nicene Creed? Okay, there's something called the Nicene Creed. It's, it's like... It's like the official church proclamation that pretty much like every church who calls themselves Christian accepts. The Nicene Creed is, it was written in 381 AD. It was later modified a little bit. But the Holy Spirit is finally and once and for all in the church acknowledged to be fully God. Fully God in the same sense that the Father and the Son are fully God. So, that, that might be important here. Might be important. Alright, let's get back into our investigation. What is the sin? What is the sin they did? So one, they, rep they misrepresented their gift and thus lied to the Holy Spirit or God. So, Ananias intentionally uh, misrepresented the gift. Sapphira intentionally misrepresented the gift. Okay, now the question is, how did they lie to God? How do you lie to God? Right? I mean, here's another, here's another term I'll throw out. Like, 
if anyone believes in like God, a general view of God, all-knowing, all-powerful, morally perfect, he is the ground of all existence, of everything else that exists, he is the ground of it. I mean, that, that, that very general concept's not even unique to Christianity. But if you're, if you're someone that believes that God exists, thinking that you can lie to him is what we call in theological circles, dumb. <laughs> yeah. D-U-M-B, not D-U-M. Like, I ruined it. Anyway, um, but like, what does that mean? You lied to God. So that brings up a little bit of problem. Maybe, I, I thought about this for a second, but maybe, because maybe they come from a pagan background, that maybe, just maybe, they thought that God wasn't as powerful as he is. And maybe they were, here, here's a nice seminary term for you that I'll just throw out. Maybe they were like monolaters. They were really, their worldview was really one of, um, they were really polytheists. They just decided that they're going to go with God. Like that God's going to be the God among all the other gods. I, I think that doesn't, that doesn't work. Because uh, I don't think they would, just, just with the Jewish background and Yahweh being so powerful, I mean clearly being God, being like the true God and real God, I don't think they would accept any sort of uh, foolishness like that within the church. So I don't think that's legitimate. Now, could it be, could it be that they actually just had a low view of the Holy Spirit and they thought they could lie to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit wasn't fully God. I don't know about that either. Um, no commentator brings that up. It's possible, um, but I like, I like the commentator C.K. Barrett. He has a two-volume series on Acts. And he says this. I think this, is the, I think this is the correct interpretation or very close to it. The Spirit so, in, so completely and radically dwells in the church as to be the one who experiences what is done to it. Let me say that again. The Spirit so completely and radically dwells in the church as to be the one who experiences what is done to it. So I think Ananias and Sapphira didn't have a low view. They may have had a low view of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. But they had a low view of the church. I think that was the big problem. They had a low view of the church, and they did not realize how much God loves and protects it. So and that's where I'm getting the principle. Dishonoring the church is dishonoring God. So that's the principle. So the church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's bride. If someone were to come up to me and be like, Marco, bro, I really like you. You're, you're good at this. You're kind, blah, 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 blah. But man, your wife, let me, give the t- let me just tell you all the things wrong. 
with her and why I don't like love her. Do you think my response is going to be like, thank you? No, I'm going to be like, that's really hurtful. That's really hurtful. Now we have to, now we have to talk. So application. My wife is wonderful, by the way. She's beautiful, so wonderful, kind, magnanimous. <laughs> Definitely not a monolater. Definitely not a monolater. You'd have to be paying attention for the last five minutes for that joke to land, so I get it. So application. Here's the application. You must be for the church. You must be for the church, including the local church. I think we need to be praying for it. You need to be part of the solution when there are issues. You have to look at it as you would a family. Uh, you have to be part of the body and serving and, and coming regularly. What it does not mean, however, what this does not mean, this mean, doesn't mean that you can never leave this place and go to another church. Uh, it just means you can't be flippant about the decision. And you must, it must be a grave decision, I think, incorporating conversations with others. Um, you don't, this does not mean that you have to lie to other people and lie to yourself of what a great place it is and, and, and sort of just you know, brush, brush aside any sort of dysfunction or anything like that. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you need to be a yes man or a yes woman. And it doesn't mean that you can't voice your thoughts. But you need to be for the church. Right. So let's talk about the strike. We talked about the sin. Let's talk about the strike. Why did God strike them down as he did? Let's go back to verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. Why did God strike them down as he did? Well, two deaths in this manner, it's beyond questioning that God had it in. Like if Ananias, you know, Ananias came and he fell down dead, you know, they're like, oh, huh, that's interesting. Well, he was also, you know, over 40, he didn't exercise a whole lot. It's probably a heart attack, you know? But man, when Sapphira, when Sapphira, she also dies immediately. Oh, that's really hard to, to write that off to a coincidence. Here's the other question. And this is the troubling question that I'm, ne I'm just not going to be able to probably give you a satisfactory answer to. Why did he strike them down? Why did he strike them down? Looking at Acts and the context, they did sully something beautiful. And God was angry. Like that Colombian shark. I'm going to take that thing out and 
throw it in the yard. I probably should have, but I didn't. So that, I can tell you that. They ruined something. They, were, they sullied something beautiful. And God lashed out. Now, the following could be a stretch, and I realize this. But there are some parallels between this story, the beginning of the church in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, I'm sorry, here, here in Acts, and the beginning of the humanity in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. You have two couples, both in something beautiful and right. God is being glorified. Satan enters into the picture. Adam and Eve are lied to by the Spirit and disobey God and get death in the original order. Ananias and Sapphira are convinced by the serpent to lie to God and get death in the new church order. Huh? Let's have a vote. Who thinks that's hogwash, pastor? Who are you? Okay. Who's like, right on, bro? Okay. I realize there's a lot of rotator cuff injuries in this church, particularly. We'll just move on. I know a lot of you want to raise your hands on one of them, but let's keep going. I don't know if that's true. I just thought it was interesting. It also reminds me of Cain, Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain gives an offering, and it's not, like, worthy, and then Abel does, and remember? Yeah. And uh, talking about offerings, Nadab and Abihu, remember those guys? They, they, they do something wrong, and God, like, <laughs> burns them up. Remember? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it, it says, when you, when you go to offer something in the temple and you remember something, someone has something against you, leave the, leave the, leave the present, leave, go, make restitu- or go uh, restore your relationship, and then come back and offer it. There's something probably about the offering and the offerer here. There's probably something about the offering and the offerer here. I mean, we're going we're gonna, to um, celebrate communion soon and i mean this this is an opportunity for us to have to see where where we are there's you know we're going to have a time of silence uh towards the beginning of communion like are are you how's your vertical relationships going how's your horizontal relationship going but i think the principle at least I don't know about that Adam and Eve business, but dishonoring the church is dishonoring God and forgetting his holiness. And how do you apply this? How do you not forget his holiness? I do, like I'll admit that I think I forget his holiness now and then. And I I think I do it a lot in, in presupposing what God ought to do. Or or blaming him for things or something like that. In fact, because I have a very strong view of God's sovereignty, I find myself grumbling now and then. Like, I have times when I'm actually mad about a bad decision that I made. Because I can say to God, or like, I can think to myself, God, why did you ordain from eternity past that I would freely make that stupid decision? And then I'm like, mm, like, like it's a Job moment. 
You know, he could be like, where were you when, you know. And then Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, one of my favorite books, even though it has some, it has some peculiarities. The theology is not always right on in, in, the, in the Lewis books, but um, Lucy was afraid when she heard about Aslan from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. One of the things she says, well, he sounds very scary. Is he safe? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver say, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what Jesus learns, too. I mean, Jesus, according to his human nature, that's getting really complicated. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, as, as Steve prayed earlier, I mean, he, with, without a care for his self-preservation, he, he turns toward Jerusalem and goes. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he knows what he's faced with, and again, I, I think he's, he's not just fearful of death. I think he's, he's fearful of experiencing hell on the cross, estrangement from the Father. They ask, is there any other way? Because part of me, part of me is thinking... I sure hope there's another way. And he gets the silence, that fatherly no. I think, I think also, though, I think one of the big things, and I, I see a lot of people around this, around this church do this pretty well, how do you approach Sunday morning? Are you trying to sleep until the very last minute? Um, are you coming in in a good state of mind? I think, I think there's, I need to be, uh, you know, we've actually talked about having routines, getting our kids into routines, and focusing on Sunday morning. We're still, that's still a work in progress. But the next question, the fear of what were the people afraid? Uh, twice the passage mentions the fear of the people. I think two quick answers. That God's judgment broke out. And that God's judgment needed to break out. I think that's the fearful thing. Then there's, there are some passages. So what, what a lot of commentators call what just happened to Ananias and Sapphira and what you're going to see is going to happen in Acts chapter 12 are judgment miracles. Judgment miracles. But then there is, there is some indication, there is some indication that there are positive penalties that God, that God uses in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, people not properly examining them, themselves, and they became weak and died. They did not properly examine themselves in communion, or they were, they were mishandling communion somehow, and they were weak and died. And I know that's, you're like, why do you bring that up on today? Like, any, you know, it's communion Sunday, you're freaking us out, but... Um, there is, there's, there's something, there's other passages too, but these other passages I, I think are debatable readings. There's, there's talk about sins that lead to death. I always kind of read those as being like spiritual death, not necessarily physical, but anyway. But the effects on the community. I think the, I think some people were just terrified. I think some people mourned Ananias and Sapphira. Like, we just had them over, like, on Tuesday. You know, they're, we, they're, su they're such nice people. But I think, 
I think the lesson for the more mature was probably the seriousness of sin and how gracious God is not giving us, is, is God is in not giving us what we deserve. So again, the seriousness of sin and how gracious God is in not giving us what we deserve. And so the final thing is appropriate fear comes from keeping his holiness and graciousness in tension. And so here we have, there's just two things that you have, there's two things that you have to do. Keep God's graciousness and his holiness in tension. And we don't, and we see tensions other places too. Um, We see in the Bible very clearly, you have to be a man or woman of action and a man man or woman of prayer. You can't go too far from one side or the other. Right? You know, if, you, if you're looking for that, if you just really, really want a different job, and you're just like praying, and you don't like actually look for it, yeah, God might work that way, but he often does not. Since we're running short on time, let me, let me jump to, how in the world does one keep God's holiness and graciousness in tension? I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 8 through 10. Paul has this mindset that we need to keep. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, with me. But I think one of the things that we can do to help keep this mindset of graciousness and holiness in tension, you know, just, just the way we present ourselves when we talk to people. You know, when people, when, when you're introducing yourself to someone, I know, I know we're kind of taught to start naming off a bunch of things that you've done that are impressive about you or neat about you. Why not start off with, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Christ. Or something like that. Or being honest in hub groups. I think my, my, my uh, hub, or the hub group that I'm in, I think people are pretty honest and it's refreshing. You don't put on this facade like everything's okay. Everything's super. You're not fooling everyone. Everyone in here has problems. So why act like you don't? Confidently admit that you are a person still in need of a savior. I think hearing ourselves, hearing one another speak the truth, I think that's, uh, that's invigorating. So. so dishonoring the church is dishonoring God and forgetting his holiness. An appropriate fear comes from keeping his holiness and graciousness in tension.